Today I rewatched the taking of Deborah Logan, and I am in the middle of my second viewing of We Need to Talk About Kevin with Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller. Karen, what are your thoughts? I see some head shaking, some grunts of disappointment. So that I've not seen the movie. I shouldn't I shouldn't poo-poo the movie. I love uh, what's his face? I love Ezra. I think he's amazing. And Tilda Swinton can do no wrong in my book. My problem is that that book got built up for me. Like, it's the most terrifying novel you'll ever read. And so I read it. And I was so fucking disappointed by the book. It was just... It just was... I just felt like... Because you get such an inside view of the mom's, like, brain space and the whole thing. And you know what? She's just a shitty parent. That's it. She's a shitty parent. And she had a shitty kid. And then shitty things happened. Like, <laughs> I don't know I mean, how the movie is. I should. This is just the book, but I say the same thing about... But the difference here is that I love the movie American Psycho, but Brett Easton Ellis can eat my fucking asshole. He's a shitty writer, and he wrote a shitty book, and the movie is better. That's That's funny you named, like, the one horror book I've ever read, which is American Psycho. Fucking hate that book so much. I'm actually (laughs) in a conversation. I didn't know that we need to talk about Kevin was a book first. Classic me. I don't read books. (laughs) But I was just talking with someone about whether Kevin's evilness is nature versus nurture. What's the answer? Is there an answer in the book? I think the answer is it's both. I think that there, I think... In the book, it does come, it does feel like there's something inherently wrong and problematic with him, like as a human child. But I don't think the mom did him any service as to making that any better. So I think it's, I would say it's, it's 50 50. Fair, as is life, right? I guess yeah. nothing is all one or the other. <laughs> Who knew? I haven't seen it. But I would, I assumed it would have taken a sympathetic lens toward the parent rather than it be that frustrating. But I, I know it's about a school shooting. That's, that's the extent of my knowledge of we need to talk about Kevin. Is the school, is the school shooting in the movie like a shooting shooting with a gun? Um, or is it no. not? It's with, is it the bow and arrow? Yeah. Okay. Cause that's what it is in the book too. And I was yeah. like, that is a choice. It- well, actually, I actually I just got to the scene again. I watched this like five years ago, but I just got to the scene where he's still a kid until the Swinton, otherwise known as Mommy, is reading Robin Hood to him, and it's like the first time they've bonded, and that he's being nice to her, and she's like describing the bow and arrow. Did not pick that up on my first watch, so mm-hmm. it's all connected and. I mean, the end of the, so I think, who asked the nature versus nurture question? Nikki, that was you. So at the end, I'll say this much, at the end of the book, you kind of get the impression that it is a little bit more nurture than nature, just in the way that it ends, in that she's writing him a letter about all the things she could have done better as his mother, and that she's going to try to do what she can now that he's basically spending the rest of his life in jail. Because I don't know how the movie ends, but that's how the book ends. But I was still like, but that's partially why I was just like, 
I don't know. I just found the book to be very unappealing after a while. And I just got a little sick of her, the mom, because it's it's all from her point of view. I would have I would have felt more intrigued by the book if it at least had both parents points of view or hers and or hers and Kevin's one of the two. But it's almost all from her perspective, which I feel like you're supposed to feel, you know, like for her and like you're but I, I felt none of those things for her. I thought she was a, a shitty mother. I take everything at face value. I'm like, yeah, totally until the side. Like everything that when a director is making a movie, what they want you to think and feel, like I usually experience that. And then I, it's a, the second watch where I actually take a critical lens. But I do feel like the book versus uh, movie conversation is a great segue for someone to introduce our topic today. I'm getting finger points and yeah. I'm going to point that finger at Brad because I've talked too much already. <laughs> I'll accept this finger point. Hey, we're Splatterbrains, a podcast dedicated to all things horror and horror adjacent, like movies and books. And we talked about creepypastas and cryptids last episode. But today, in the spirit of books versus movies, we're talking about our Lord and Savior, the dearest Stephen King. I just want to start off by saying, uh, there was a Facebook page when I was in college called Steve King, and it just posted really dumb Facebook posts, and like most of them ended with "boo, gotcha, Steve." So, anyone, anyone I, seen that one before? <laughs> That's his favorite no, work of mine. I just want to make sure it makes it into the audio that we all laughed on mute, so it wasn't just Brad saying something that didn't land. But no, I haven't seen it. It's it's somewhat related but not related to our topic in any way but my favorite facebook page that i followed was uh r.i.p dimebag Derek, and it was a picture of kirk hammett on there it's just it's like the same spirit of the thing yeah yeah, yeah. uh, i think it was the same like person probably for a long time there's one called tom hank and it's a picture of jim carrey and there's one named matt romney and he started in like 2012 and mitt romney is running but all of his stuff is like honestly i'm partying (laughs) that's just and it's still going. It's great. It's the only one I think that still exists of those three. You all deal with the flood of taking the bean out for a cold one, or like it's just like it was like Facebook events, and it was people hanging out with Millennium Park's bean, just like in different things. Yeah, one of yeah. my uh, before <laughs> we need to get Stephen King eventually, but one of my friends was friends with a person who had a Facebook event that actually got like a coverage on the news. I think it was called, like, I'm going to drink Lake Michigan. <laughs> and all these people showed up to it. And I think the person that was doing it took, like, a single, like, drink of a cup of water. I think they were, like, blindfolded or something. And they tr- took a drink and they took the blindfold off. Like, oh, damn, it's still there. And that was that was the event. Did that person get Giardia afterwards? Uh, well, I haven't heard from them since. So, uh, Karen, it's actually called Jardinera here in Chicago. <laughs> That this show will never get better than this, and I would vote that we end the episode right there. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, Brad, we lost your audio, or I did. I can't hear anything. I can hear you. Oh, no, I can't hear shit. That's Uh okay. Cut all this out. I can't hear anything. I'll be back. Oh, my God. You and I both know I'm leaving at least some of that in. There was something that she asked me to cut last time, and I absolutely <laughs> said, no, I will leave that. So, 
You can look forward to hearing me talking right now about how I'm not going to cut this in the actual episode. I'm going to get us started on Stephen King. Great. Uh, I want to know. Well, here, let me preface with this. In this group of four, Brad and Karen are kind of like our bookworm nerd extraordinaires. Alex, you're a nerd in your own right. But in terms of Stephen King nerd dumb, Brad and Karen are experts. So I was super curious to hear just about favorites um, in terms of like books, movies, the whole Stephen King universe. So I'd love to hear from everyone, the top five. What's your top five Stephen King? It can be the movie. It could be the book. It could be both, whatever it is. Top five. Karen, I'm going to make you go first. Okay. I will say I'm going to preface this with all of my top five. All of top five is novels because I am at heart a book nerd and I love books. So my first most favorite novel of the 25 plus Stephen King novels I have read. My number one is The Stand. Absolutely hardcore The Stand. Number two is It. Number three is Carrie. Number four is Misery. And number five is The Shining. So all pretty like hardcore King staples. The reason The Stand is my most favorite is because of all of the books that I've read, I feel like The Stand has one of the best world building the outside of the dark tower series and also the stand is what made me want to read the dark to like i immediately started reading the dark tower after i finished the stand uh which if you're a glutton for punishment do that because read a 1200 page novel and then start a seven book long series uh no trust me it's great no, it really was. It was it was awesome. <laughs> I loved the stand because of the, how much world building is done just in the novel itself. And I think it was also probably the first time in the Stephen King books that I've read that I started to see things get put together across like the Stephen King universe. There's references made back to it and just several other books throughout the stand itself. And then it also acknowledges the Dark Tower at the very end and kind of what happens with Randall Flagg. So that's why The Stand is number one. And then It, Carrie, Misery, and The Shining. I mean, these are just staple Stephen King novels. It was actually the first Stephen King book I ever read. And please know that I accidentally read The Stand. I actually was wanting to read The Dead Zone, and I got the two titles mixed up. And The Stand just showed up in my ebooks to be borrowed from the library. And that is how I ended up reading The Stand. It took me four months and I kept that. I had to keep my Kindle on airplane mode just so I could finish it, but I had to finish it. So yeah, that that's those are those are my top five. Love it. Brad, top five. All right, I've got a good mix, but I just want to say The Dark Tower very much disappointed me. And I don't know. And I've never gone back to the stand since reading it. So I didn't know if there were like, connections to, like, obviously I know the connections to the stand in the Dark Tower, but I didn't know about vice versa apart from Randall Flagg. But uh, yeah, I think I've got a pretty good mix of top five of mediums. I mean, I don't have any like, shows or anything, but for my number one, I put The Shining, the movie. It's just fucking great. I have The Shining carpet in my basement and I have that pattern on socks and all kinds of clothing. Um, Number two was uh, It, the book. That's just fucking great. It was also my first Stephen King. And we talked about Stephen King, I think, last episode. And like in the past two weeks since we recorded that, I've just like 
walked by our spare room that we have all of our books in and like eyeballed it out of the corner of my eye every time I go by. And I'm like, one day I'm going to go back to it again. But I can't. Uh, after that, I have The Shining, the book. Surprise. I think it was great. I'll talk about it later on. But after that, I have <laughs> another surprise. It Chapter 1, the movie. <laughs> so you can see where my brand is here. Uh, which is very fitting that we're talking about this today because I just posted in our Splatter Reigns group chat uh, from my Facebook memories a photo of Nikki and I wearing our matching It shirts that we got from an early premiere of the movie from like four years ago, which was fun. And then for number five, I have Salem's Lot, the book, not the movie, because it was like a I fun. Do wanna... Oh, I was going to say with that picture, you forgot to mention that we're also referencing The Shining because we're holding hands in a hallway like the twins. True, yes. So yeah, very, uh, I have a, a type for books and movies that I enjoy. Alex, top five. Oh, Karen, go. Sorry, I'm being too prescriptive on this I'm, conversation. No, it's fine. I'm just sad that The Dark Tower was disappointing, Brad. I fucking loved The Dark Tower. It's of all of the series I've read, which includes Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. It's probably my favorite book series. So I'm sad to hear you weren't you weren't a fan, but I get it. Teach through. Sorry. I have The Drawing of the Three as my number six on all my Stephen King books. That's my favorite of, of all of of all seven books. That's my favorite. So yeah, there's seven. Are, there are seven Dark Tower novels. Technically seven and a half. There's a whole win through the keyhole thing, which read it or not, it's fine. But yeah, there are seven books in the Dark Tower series. And the drawing of the three is also my favorite of the seven. Brad, have you read all seven and a half? Not the half, but I was so like turned off by the, the last like two or three that I was like, I don't want to read. I can put this down for the rest of my life, I guess. Is the I had a coworker tell me because I haven't read the Dark Tower series that there is an actual page in the book where it basically says it, you can end it here or you can continue. It's your choice. This is this is a fitting ending for some people, but I've chosen to continue to write. That's there's a physical message within the pages that state okay interesting yeah i was thinking about this while i was writing my responses to the prompts we came up for this week i think we might want to i mean that might be a lot of editing for alex but we might want to throw in time codes for spoilers of stuff i don't know or we can just say spoilers and people can skip ahead 30 seconds uh i don't know if you guys want me to spoil dark tower for you my co-hosts but the uh yeah there is a page that says end here and if you don't end there, it pretty much just takes Roland the Gunslinger back to the very start of the story. So, like, the whole... There's a saying throughout the series called, time is a wheel. Uh, oh, no. No, or, no. Cause a wheel. Cause a wheel. Sorry. Yeah. So he keeps going and doing the same shit over and over and over again and, like, ruining other people's lives. So he's, like, the bad guy by default. Or is he? And... The other thing to the very, to the end, to the end end, where Roland basically goes back to the beginning and it all starts over again, is every time he does this, you're, you're under the impression that just one small thing has changed. I think in, th when he resets at the very end, it's like he has his one gun or there's just something that's slightly different than the way he started before. And every time it's kind of meant to be like, is this the time that, he ends, he gets out of it, but most likely not because cause a wheel and you're always just going to restart over and over and over again. Uh, we will get to my top five. 
but I have to ask since you both at least experienced the series. I didn't watch the movie because I I tried I've tried reading the Gunslinger a few times, and it hasn't stuck with me for whatever reason. Gotten like halfway through it each time, and I'm gonna get there. I would like to at least read the first three because uh, the drawing of the three is on my shelf, but I've never gotten to it. I have the Gunslinger audiobook which was purchased a long time ago that I've just consistently tried to get through. But I was curious about why people were so grumpy about that movie because I didn't interact with it. I didn't look at reviews. I just knew people didn't like it because I I don't have any attachment to the current like the source material currently. Karen can speak for herself, but when I was reading those uh, books, like I had like some friends of friends that. Like, I'd be like on the train, they'd be like, oh, you're reading that book? Oh, man, if I didn't even know you, I'd stop and talk to you. So the people that liked The Dark Tower really liked The Dark Tower. So I feel like the people that saw that and were disappointed were very vocally disappointed about it. I have never seen the movie. Um, I was told, I I have this tendency when I start to read books that if there's a movie made about them, I will wait till I'm done with the book and or books to see the movie. I made an exception for it. Because I was like 60% of the way through it when chapter one came out. And I was like, I'll be fine. <laughs> chapter two is the adult stuff. So like, I'll be fine. I know what I know all the shit that happens in the fir- this first movie uh, after having read the book. But I never saw the Dark Tower movie because I was told by every single person who talked to me about the Dark Tower that unless I wanted the series to be absolutely ruined... <laughs> don't see the movie so i just never saw the movie uh mostly because i have such a like high view of the the, the series like i love the series so i don't want it to be ruined like that so i never saw the movie i have a tendency to ask fans of things even if i'm not a fan of them if they've seen the thing that people didn't like from the series i have a close friend who used to run dungeons and dragons for a group of friends of mine he was really into Avatar The Last Airbender, which he then at some point lent me, and I have watched the first season of. But I loved bringing up that M. Night Shyamalan movie. I haven't seen it. I just am a troll, and I know that people hated it, and so that was why. That's, I don't think this is as extreme. It might be, uh, but it's not. I don't think that movie was as inept as The Last Airbender was, or Dragon Ball Evolution, or the Tekken movie, or just like just stuff where you have people that are fans of a property and they just really drop the ball. Uh, I could go on about comic book movies that really suck, that I'm really mad that they changed some of the details on Kick-Ass and Looking at You, that movie's a piece of shit. But I'll talk about uh, Stephen King a little bit. My number one thing for Stephen King, I'm not going to say I have a top five because I am not well-versed enough. I mean, I have five stories or five things that are related to Stephen King that I love. But to say that they're the top five is to suggest that I have enough of a knowledge of the other stories that I can pick a top five. But it's Creepshow is my number one end-all be-all. George Romero and Stephen King doing EC Comics. All three of those things are th- the perfect combination. Creepshow 2 is an expansion pack. It doesn't even need to be called a sequel. It's just three weird stories that definitely didn't belong in the first one. They took the weakest of all of those and they stuck them in there but there's some fun to be had with it i haven't seen creep show 3 and the tv series is i could do a whole episode on because i want it to be good and i keep sticking with it having a hard time with it but there are a few individual episodes that are very good regardless creep show number one it's one of my favorite movies ever it is one of the things that uh, i remember my mom talking about seeing halloween and creep show those and uh, texas chancellor massacre when she was a teenager 
she didn't like horror movies, but she saw those things because she was a teenager in the 70s. And so I remember seeing Creepshow in a video store when I was old enough to rent videos for myself. And I did. And yeah, that's one of the sort of the first time you hear the Ramones kind of movies for me is Creepshow. But the other thing, the first time I ever, the first Stephen King book I read was in also because of my mom. We were in the car and she would always play audiobooks almost all the time. We listened to Jurassic Park and The Lost World together. But we listened to On Writing, the Stephen King book, and that is one of my favorite books ever. It made me want to write because of how just like the biography is, is fun. It's silly. It makes you understand what a geek this guy is and what a fan of the genre he is. So I'm I will defend him to my very core, even if I don't. I just because it's like he's a stand in for me. I see myself in, like you know, five years looking like that guy does right now. Uh, just. I just respect that he was clearly somebody raised on horror comics in DC, you know, creepy, whatever, all this stuff from the fifties and sixties that eventually got banned. And he took that and he made it into a medium people took seriously. So that's really cool. So on writing is my number two, my first actual Stephen King book that I remember sitting down and reading and loving. And I'm still very emotionally attached to his pet cemetery, the book. I love the movie. I really do. It, it should be on this list, but since I'm saying Pet Cemetery out loud, both the 80s movie and the story, I think, are fantastic. Still love the movie. The new one was a waste of time. What else do I have? I really liked Needful Things. I, I remember listening to the audiobook for that when I was in my early 20s because I watched the miniseries on TV as a kid, which was something I probably should not have been watching. I don't remember what aired that, but there's so many... Stephen King ABC miniseries that I remember catching most of or some of. There was The Shining thing that he did. There was Rose Red. I watched all of that with my brother. Uh, I'm trying to think. Was that, do you know if the Needful Things TV series was a part of that? Or am I just making up that there was a film? Ver no, I'm sorry. There was a movie that they would play on TV all the time. I saw Needful Things when I was a kid on like TBS or something like that. That was, yeah. Yeah. I saw that when in a camper on a camping trip when I was really young. And it took me forever to like Google all the little bits and pieces I remembered from it. I was like, oh, this is Stephen King. This makes sense. We could do an entire episode on, because you know, anybody that's into pop culture of any kind could do episodes on fandoms that ruin things. But I have, I would, I have to begrudgingly mention the Rick and Morty episode that is just needful things because it's so good. Like, it's hilarious. If you can get over the fact that some assholes put videos of themselves on the internet doing lines from Rick and Morty. It is a very funny show. You can just take yourself out of the background and just watch that episode. It's super funny. It's just a 25-minute version of the ironic twist, needful things episode. So highly recommend that. And lastly, and I'm not even kidding about this, I also, this is another, I saw it on TV as a kid because they used to play Stephen King stuff all the time, is Graveyard Shift. I fucking love that movie. I love it. It is. I don't even think Stephen King likes it. It's. It kind of goes in the maximum overdrive camp of like, it's a cheesy movie, I guess, but it's a big monster movie. It's rat bats, like giant, like things that live underground. And I, it was one of the first like, creature movies that I remember seeing. So those are my my Stephen King, Creep Show on writing, Pet Cemetery, Needful Things, and Graveyard Shift. Oh, I guess, man, I want to talk about The Mist too. I love the film version of that. Uh, we'll get to it. So that's me. So let's pass it to Nikki. I've talked long enough. Um, okay. Well, first and foremost, I found out that Stephen King is 6'4". Did anyone else know he was that tall? I thought he was a little guy. 
Karen I feel like no. everyone born before like 1990 are tall. I feel like once they hit 1990, we all started shrinking. Yeah. I think so Karen, what are you like? Seven foot eight? I am. Oh, fuck. Yeah. The, the further back you go, the taller you get. That's just yep. how, it's, how it's worked. Yeah. Yeah. Got her. Got her. <laughs> I was um, born in 1939. Thank you. Actually, my grandma was born in 1939, and that's the year The Wizard of Oz came out. So that's a very cool year to be born, Karen. Another, oh, sorry, I just thought these things were cool. Stephen King's birthday is September 21st, which is this month, which means he's a Virgo and is also three days away from mine. But I also looked up his birth chart, and um, let's just say we have three planets that are the same in our birth charts, but just one of us went on to become a successful writer and one of us didn't. So that was uh, fun to read. But okay, so my top five is all movies because I don't like to read. Fun fact, don't like to read, put it on screen. If it's a good book, it'll become a good movie. First, I will say I switched one and two in the last 10 minutes of this conversation. Number one, is Carrie, Brian De Palma's Carrie. And I think the biggest thing for me is that in terms of Stephen King's stories, it is most certainly not the most exciting to me. Like even the movie isn't super horrific, obviously, you know, until the last little bit. So this isn't even really a head nod to Stephen King. It's a head nod to Brian De Palma. Um, I'm going to butcher the name of the composer for the film, Carrie, but Pino Degaggio, I think he's an Italian composer, obsessed with the film score. I will listen to it on YouTube beginning to end, like almost like I'm listening to an audiobook. Like I'll just listen to the whole movie of Carrie through its film score. So that's my number one. Number two, which was number one before, is It the 1990-ish miniseries, Tim Curry. The reason that one rocked because Tim Curry is amazing. Um, I don't know how much it holds. I watched it last October. It's, I think it holds up because I have the nostalgia. Alex furiously shaking his head no. But I don't, I don't know. We can come but that's my number two. Um, I did actually, that is one of the few Stephen King books I did. Uh, well, I didn't read it. I listened to it on audiobook. I'll do anything to avoid looking at words on a page. Um, and I liked it, but I just think I can't really handle the whole uh, thousand page, huge evolution of a story situation. And because I had already sort of seen it, and I know that it, the book is different than the miniseries is different than the reboot from 2017-2019 but the even the audiobook didn't particularly it, it was just like too much detail for me I was like where's the clown basically so that's number two mini series it three the shining again uh great story but also more of a head nod to Stanley Kubrick and Jack Nicholson for just making that great number four Pet Cemetery OG 1989 Again, made great by Fred Gwynn, uh, Herman Munster. And also uh, the little boy who plays Gage is also the uh, creepy boy from Wes Craven's New Nightmare, from Kindergarten Cop, from uh, all sorts of shit from the 90s. And he's 5'6". What's, uh, what's the line that he's famous for in Kindergarten Cop? Could you repeat it on the podcast? 
I don't know, actually. What is the line? Isn't he the kid that stands up and he's like... Uh, yeah, girls, yeah, okay. uh, boys have penises and girls have vaginas. <laughs> there it is. There it is. All right. Some things are I've, best left unspoken, but not that. Not that. That one everyone needed to know. Um, that actor's name is Michael Hughes, by the way. Never knew his name. I was just like the creepy kid from the 90s. And then I was looking up who his parents are, and it said John Hughes. I was like, no fucking way. We have this connection. It's not that connection. It's just another guy named John Hughes. So number four, Pet Cemetery OG, 1980 movie. Number five is a toss-up. This one also changed in the last half hour. I had the stand in there because it's the book, the book I've been slogging through for two years. I'm on page 507 as of today. And I put it in there just because I'm like, uh, this is more just a hat tip to myself for even trying to read it and less about the story. Because um, if it were really like that interesting to me, I probably would have finished it two years ago. But that's a hot take, which we can explore later. So I changed it to Creep Show, which I also uh, grew up watching as a kid. But I have like very slight memories of it because I was so young and didn't watch it a ton. But I always remember uh, Leslie Nielsen's head in the sand as being one of the creepiest things. And I rewatched it last year and uh, was pleasantly surprised by it just because I, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. So I figured it uh, earned a spot in the top five. Ah, uh, yes. Karen with the creep show copy. Alex going to get his creep show copy. Brad's got Alex. it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Go nerds. That's my top five. Nikki, I, I think we can all agree that we put our favorite media in a list of what we love best based on our own personal accomplishments associated with it. <laughs> I love that you, you threw the stand in there because I'm reading it and I don't read. So, so I'm uh, almost through it halfway. <laughs> yeah, you're on I mean, It's uh, a seven of what? thick book. It is a thick book. It took me, I want to say, and I am a heavy reader and it still took me like Five, four or five months to get through it. I'm so sorry. I, but my brain has to just say the things that have come to mind. I really thought you were going to go, I'm a thick book as well. And I think that is a, <laughs> a fun thing to describe yourself as. Well, I, I am also a thick book. Thank you. That's I was going to say that. That's just that a funny book. turn of phrase. When she's like, that's a thick book. I was going to be like, that book has a dump truck ass. But Thank I, you. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. I, I need... That. I want you to bring more of that into the podcast so that I'm not embarrassing myself saying things like that. It's way yeah. funnier coming from you. The stand. Thick fucking book. And the problem with reading it over the course of two years is I go months between picking it back up. So I forget who the people are, what the plot. Like, basically, whenever I pick it up, I'm like, there's the good side with the old woman. And then there's the bad side with the guy. And then there's the creepy guy who's bad because he didn't get the girl he wanted and that's kind of the people i know and then there's like the good guy stew and that's all i've got and it's honestly gotten to me through the last couple hundred pages just remembering that much mm -hmm. i know i know the names of all of those people you're referring referencing but i don't want to make you feel bad so i won't say anything good uh, i just want to call out because we talked about obviously talking about the stand a lot and karen i think before we officially started uh, or no, Nikki, before we officially start, you are talking about, when you talk about Kevin with Ezra Miller, he played a uh, trash can man in the uh, CBS stand that came out last year, this year. And it, he was just balls. He was the worst. He was the worst thing. It was no good. I was, 
every time he was on the screen, I just wanted to turn the damn show off. Well, part of the reason I want to finish the book is so that I can watch that. It, it's, it has merits. I mean, it's not great, but it has some good moments. And I mean, it has like, a great cast. Um, speaking of that, uh, we talked a little bit just about how there's just in the last few years, kind of since it chapter one, I think 2017, there's just kind of been an onslaught of resurgence of Stephen King adaptations. Like, obviously, we have a lot from the 90s and 80s, but then it's kind of this next gen. What's everyone's thoughts on just that? The fact that it's kind of like there's remakes of Stephen King material that some of us know from the books, or there's remakes of movies that were Stephen King adaptations. How do we feel about this generation? Well, I think that the remake of it was responsible for the remake of Pet Cemetery. And so my opinion is wholly biased because that's what the first thing I think of is the slick, polished sort of remaster that tries to update the story in a way that makes it, un- but gives us a surprise of some kind. And that didn't work super well in either of them. I, Brad, you said you really liked it chapter one, and I would like to know more from that because I could nitpick apart how things are different than the book, but that is a boring thing that everybody could say all the time. Yeah, no, I, it is very like cleaned up and polished and streamlined and everything, but I think that they stuck. I mean, there's a lot of shows, obviously, and things like look at fucking like Stranger Things that are like, oh, remember the 80s? We're just gonna be in the 80s and have 80s music. It definitely did that, but it like stuck to its sort of theme and timeline and everything. And I just feel like every time Pennywise was on the screen, like my eyes were glued to the screen. He had such like a great like screen presence. Um, I think even better than Tim Curry. Sorry, Nikki, but I don't know. I was just glued to it like every time it was on. Um, I mean, the first like teaser trailer that came out for it was. Uh, I feel like from that moment on was when we kind of jumped back into the return of the king if you'll pardon me saying that in like the king renaissance because like that first like teaser the music and everything it just set the stage and set the tone for like everything that's coming after and granted we were set like with a pretty high bar and kind of everything's been pretty low after that but i mean the pet cemetery remake is like entirely forgettable if i wasn't reminded that it existed i would have completely forgot about it I agree with you, Brad, because I really liked Chapter 1, It Chapter 1. Uh, I can't say the same for It Chapter 2. That was terrible. That was terrible. I think movie. the one thing I didn't like about It Chapter 1 was that weird-ass song that like didn't fit the rest of the movie at all. It was like a cover oh like sung by kids. I don't know. It was weird. Dear God, <laughs> I hope you got this letter. Okay. I've had that stuck in my head like a couple weeks ago, and obviously I know the, the XTC song, but like I didn't remember where that version I had heard and it's okay. That's totally it. I thank you for bringing that back into my life. Everybody. Hate it. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that song as the one thing I fucking loathe about it. Dude, can we talk one. about it in chapter two when they play, just call me angel while he's getting barfed on. Loved that. No, what the loved fuck was that? that. The, was the so- tonal shift in like, I'm supposed to be scared of this thing to ha ha. You're getting barfed on by this entity. That could potentially kill you. But I, yeah, anyway. Right. I think with It Chapter One, my, it wasn't a bad movie, but I think what it did so different from the story and from the original uh, Tim Curry miniseries is that 
Brad, to your point, it kind of made the 80s nostalgia kind of like goony, stranger things ask. Like it tried to make it funny and cute in the times when it wasn't being scary. And it just felt like that was so, I don't know, I didn't like the comedy uh, or the mix of comedy and horror in this situation because I think a story like that should just deep dive right into horror. And it makes sense why it did that to like cast a broader net, get a bigger audience, get more people kind of into the genre. So I get it, but I just didn't like that part of it. Like the kid part, they just made a little too fun for my liking. I think that it works for me just because like in movies, like, I mean, this is so unfair to say because they're kids, but like kid actors just kind of suck sometimes. Like when you have a bad kid actor in a movie, it like totally takes away from everything. But all the kids in it like had a really good like dynamic going. Like they actually felt like they were friends for the most part, even though like we saw like the introduction of a couple of them to the group. But yeah, I don't know. I think they all the kid actors were great. Um, I'm kind of sick of seeing Finn, Wolfhard and everything. Uh, but they were all great and they had great dynamic. I thought that it being kind of lighthearted as it was, was like a good way to kind of present the horror, I guess. Like when you're a kid, like, yeah, things are scary, but you don't really understand like what it all means and like the impact that it actually has on the world. So they're just kind of kids experiencing a scary thing, reacting to it a way like kids probably would. Like I'll grab my, I mean, in the book, they use a slingshot, but in the movie, they grab the little like, cattle, uh, killer thing i don't know that's i mean i don't know if i talked about it before but like when i walked in on the robbery when i was a kid we were like let's go grab our bb guns like it's a stupid ass kid thing to do i strangely am with nikki in that when it comes to the horror of that story i prefer i this is gonna sound horrible but i prefer things to be upsetting i prefer them to remind me of how i felt when i was a kid when i was scared of things like that because as much as i've I haven't totally grown out of being scared of the unknown. It's still things were so much more extreme then. So for some reason I really liked in the original miniseries kind of, or even the story itself, how kind of dark and depressing it is for a lot of those kids and how like the getting bullied thing all the time, that was just very relatable, which I think it's relatable to all of us. I don't think that's exclusive to me. I think we just all dealt with our shitheads in our life and that just led to something more extreme in that story. And I, I really liked that. I don't think you've actually told the story of you walking in on a robbery and getting a BB gun, but you don't have to tell it if you don't want to. Maybe you did. I 100% can. I don't know if I did or not, but we uh, was at a friend's house. I'm trying. To, I'm going to try and like shorten it a little bit. We were at a friend's house, pretty young. My cousin and I were at this friend's house, and the friend's mom's like, "Hey, I'm going to go run groceries, so you guys can either come with me, or you can uh, go to somewhere else. You can't stay at the house alone because you're like 10." So we said, okay, we'll ride our bikes and go somewhere else. So we ride our bikes on the street and go to this other kid's house. And the kid, the first kid I was with, whose mom left, got into a fight with this other kid. So we decided to leave. And we just like, rode our bikes back to his house. When we got there, the front door was open. And so we walked in, stupidly, and heard people talking in the basement. And in the basement, his dad was a big like sports memorabilia collector. So we heard people talking down there. Like They said, like, oh, shit because they must have heard us like walk in or something. So we walk out, and we go around the side of the house. They have both an attached and a detached garage. We go into the detached garage and grab BB guns and go in through the attached garage. And so we get in that side door into the house, and right next to it, adjacent to it, is a door into the basement. And they always kept that door open because they had a little dog, and it was the summertime, and if the dog got downstairs, but the door was closed. 
So we look to our left and see a man out on the back deck outside the patio door with a gun. And my friend and cousin booked it back out of the house. And I was just like frozen. And I heard somebody running up the stairs of the basement. And I saw the little door knob start to turn. And that's when I turned and booked it. And we saw one guy that was on the back run into like the woods in the backyard. And we saw another guy run to the front uh, through the garage driveway in the front and hop in a car that was waiting for him and they took off they called the cops and like they showed up with like an m16 like a assault rifle or something and there was like a house nearby that was being built and there was like a guy in there and he pointed the gun at him he's like freeze and the guy was like shit his pants like screaming like don't shoot and it was just the guy that like owned the house who just happened to be there looking at the construction of it at the time but yeah i don't think they ever found who did it but our theory is that it was the older brother's friends because Obviously, if you're there in the basement, you know that the guy has uh, a sports memorabilia, so you have to have like an inside man. So yeah, that was when I had my own Pennywise experience. That's fucking terrifying. That's my that's that was one of my greatest fears as a child: being abducted or somebody robbing and or burglar bur- burgling my home. Yeah, it's a uh, it's had some lasting effects on me in my life. <laughs> Nikki, you seem like the type to just be like, the fuck are you doing in my house? But as like an eight-year-old, that's just, I just I can picture it perfectly. You know, I'm glad that that is the image I give off because it's a mask for deep-seated fear and a giant bystander effect where uh, I like to think I would like be a badass in a situation, but I think I tend to freeze up and uh, kind of shrink down in scary situations. So the more invisible I can be to something that's scary, the better, you know, like I, we, uh, in the horror chat that we have with other, you know, former coworkers where we did like the superlatives, I was so sure I was going to be voted the one who hides the whole time, like in a horror movie and then comes out at the end. I'm not a hero. I'll tell you that. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not a hero, but thank you for thinking so much of me because I want to know this one um we've talked a lot about kind of the a lot of the box office hits of stephen king books and movies that have kind of surged um but i know this group here we've already kind of mentioned a few that are maybe like second or third tier in terms of what people may or may not know of stephen king's work so i'm curious if people have other sort of like shout outs stephen king stories that um they want to kind of talk about like some I had on my list when I was trying to rate what I liked. Again, this is from the movie perspective, misery. You know, I know that's actually like a good movie and I think won an Academy Award or something. Um, Misery, Cujo, The Mist, Sleepwalkers, which I rewatched last month. And wow, was that one fun? The Green Mile. So any other like Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher. Yeah. What other ones are out there? Dreamcatcher is insane. It is is. insane. I didn't know what that was about. I had never seen it and have had a copy of it. And she's like, oh, it's really good. And she does really love it. And I don't fault her for that. But what the fuck is Dreamcatcher? I I just think of just monsters in the toilet. Like the most extreme version of that I've ever seen in my life. That and or I like to think of it as aliens, but make it gassy. 
I haven't seen it in oh, so boy. long, so I'm I, a lot of this is going over my head. But I did watch it like my freshman year in college. My friend was like, "Hey, I have this crappy movie that we can watch," and I was like, "I don't know, it wasn't that bad. I like I like the premise of it, I guess." Based on my memory of it, the premise is that these like former friends have a shared like psychic mind space, and like an alien entity like finds it and like starts attacking them because they own the shared mind space. I don't know. I'm like, that's a cool premise to me. I don't know. I want to read the book, even though people say both the book and movie are uh, really bad. I will say this much, because I saw the movie way back in probably high school, whenever it came out, because I had a very deep-seated obsession with Jason Lee uh, until I found out he was a Scientologist. And then I was like, oh, fuck that guy. Uh, But Mallrats, I mean, him and Mallrats is just... Anyways. I saw the movie way back when, and then I actually just recently read the book, I don't know, let's say like a couple years ago, and the book is, I I didn't find it to be a horror book for that, for all that much. I thought it was just a really fun, ridiculous sci-fi novel. Like, it was so ridiculous, but it was just, it was a fun read. I had a good, I liked it better than the movie, but I don't, would I call either of those good? No. No. But if you like fart jokes, definitely read the book because it's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> what about The Mist? I think, Alex, you brought up The Mist before. So, I've, I don't have like a detailed version of this story, but I didn't know anything about it going into the movie. And then when I watched the movie, I went, I've, I've been burned by films before. And in a movie like that, I know for a fact that what I want to see is giant creatures. That's what I want. I want there to actually be something in The Mist. I don't want it to be mist that melts you. I don't want it to be this spiritual entity. I want it to be giant bugs from another dimension, which it was, which is awesome. And I went with two friends who weren't necessarily horror fans. They were both friends of mine in southeastern Wisconsin, which is a very different culture than a lot of places that I've lived. I'm not making fun of them. I'm just suggesting that perhaps that wasn't their style of film to go see with me. Normally, we'd go see... uh, blockbuster type movies we there was a theater by us in lake geneva that for five bucks on friday and saturday nights they would play movies at midnight that weren't necessarily midnight movies so like i saw the original teenage mutant ninja turtles office space um what else did i see with them uh tommy boy like at midnight for they would also do midnight movies and weird stuff too but that was the sort of thing and then we went and saw the mist and that ending happened and my two friends would not stop going well that Fuck, it sucked. And I was like giddy because I loved it so much. And I was like, that is the bleakest, most horrible ending of anything ever. And even without that, I still would have loved the movie. But you never forget that. It's just there and it's with you. And I love it. It's a, it's a giant creature movie where a horrible thing happens at the end. And even though good technically wins, like it's kind of feels like evil triumphs in this situation. And now with COVID, it feels so one to one with how the world reacted to a dire situation. We can talk about this every episode, but you know, the world's experiencing it. So we might as well reflect on that. I just think of Mrs. Carmody with every, every stupid talking head, right wing moron on TV. You can quote me on that. So I love the mist. So fun fact about the movie, the mist, uh, Stephen King has outright said that the ending of the movie is 10 times better than the ending he wrote for the book. And he would love to go back and redo the ending to the book so that it reflects the movie because he thought the movie ending was just so much better than his ending. 
And I don't just and having read and having read the book and seen the movie, I don't disagree. Let's talk about it. I think it. the movie's ending is so. I don't much remember exactly where you said it. I just want to sneak this in because you. I want to hear more about the book. It's just somewhere Stephen King is quoted saying that he came up with the idea for the story just going to the grocery store with his mom and imagining like pterodactyls eating everybody, and that is the best way to start a story for me. I love it. That's it. Yep. Karen, can you? Uh... Spoilers for anyone who is listening who hasn't seen The Mist, because we're going to talk about it. Can you say what the book ending is? Because the movie ending is phenom, in that it's tragic, but it's phenom and all. In the book, they, like, managed to make it out to a jeep and leave. Like, it, it's honestly, like, kind of... Yeah, it's pretty lackluster. It's a pretty lackluster for all of the buildup and shit in the book. Like, it's a pretty lackluster ending. And I know we're going to get into, like, Stephen King endings and how people give Stephen King endings so much shit. I am not one of those people. I think he does great things with his endings. And as somebody who considers themselves kind of a writer, ending, trying to end any story is fucking difficult. Trying to end a story... In that is so well built as Stephen King builds his stories is is near impossible. So close to the man for trying, but yeah, the I will say the book the book's ending is kind of lackluster compared to the movie. Like it's just some of them escape, get into a jeep, and leave, and like drive out of the mist to try to find help. It's kind of just the way it ends, and you're like, and you're kind of left wondering, oh, do they or don't they? But Brad, have you seen The Mist? Uh, I haven't seen it in like a long time. I remember bits and pieces, but um, I don't know. I think I like the... uh, the, I have a lot to say about the endings. Yeah, I remember the movie ending. I remember the book ending. I don't know which I prefer. I think that I like... Isn't like at the very end, like after the the car scene, like the in the movie, like the military rolls through? I think I liked the book better then because there was no like definitive like we're fighting back the monsters it was kind of like almost more grim even though the main characters make it out there's no like end in sight for like the rest of the world oh i disagree i think i loved the movie well not that i read the book again do i even need to say it at this point the movie ending i think is my favorite because and this is a personal thing it's like a culmination of my biggest fears like Part of just me as a person, I don't like to feel responsible for people's misery or I don't like to feel like I made a bad choice. You know, like I I instantly, if I realize I like clicked the wrong answer on something or I I was like, oh shit, I was thinking this, but I didn't do it. Eats me alive. Like that's just my own horror movie in my head. And the fact that that's essentially what happens in this movie where he's like, shit, I made it. I'm just going to say the ending because we can, I already said we're going to talk about the ending. So it's the dad, his son, and like two other people in this Jeep getting away. They only have three bullets and they're kind of like, this sucks. Like there's no end in sight. So the father has to make a choice. Like, do I let my son survive in this hopeless world? So he ends up killing his son and the other two people in the car. And then he just leaves himself because it's a hopeless world and then like literally in like five minutes like the military shows up or you know a short amount of time i'm like that fucking sucks it wasn't an hour later it wasn't a day later maybe it was like an hour later 
but just the close timing. Oh, I juicy. And like you um, kind of get the ominous, like you still don't really know, you know, what's going to happen. So you kind of get that like taste of Brad, what you're talking about, but I just love that it gives you some finality while also making you be like, what the fuck? That's There's nothing like, the finality of Thomas Jane screaming at the sky until credits roll. I will say, okay, so on the flip side to this is, for me, is Cujo. I love the ending of the book way more than the ending of the movie because the book ending is so much more bleak. So much more bleak. In the book, the kid fucking dies. And she just has to live with the fact that her kid just died in front of her and she couldn't do anything about it. It's so much more bleak than the ending where like they save, they come and save him like just in time. The book is like, oh no, you're not getting off that easy, people. This shit's going down. That kid's gonna die and she's gonna barely make it out alive and everybody is gonna be really fucked up afterwards. I, that is one of the few King books that I have read where I put it down after finishing it and being like, no, man, that shit was real fucked up. Like, that was real fucked up to watch a four-year-old basically, like, disintegrate in front of your eyes, quote, quote unquote, while you're reading. Like, wow. Wow. Yes. And that's also, I think, the reason why, um, speaking of Stephen King killing children, that's why I love Pet Cemetery so much, too, is, like, Gage, cute as fuck. You're just introduced to him. He's going to be a whole character. And they... You can't just kill a toddler in a movie. Yeah, you can. And you can kill him like right in the middle of it too. And then make him evil. Holy shit. No fair. Okay. No fair. <laughs> Isn't that like his final words when he's dying like, again? No fair. Yes. I do want to. That's good. I'm a big fan of Pet Cemetery, But I want to talk about, because we're talking about endings. I want to talk about, I have a lot to say about the endings of Stephen King books. And this is something that ties back to my days working in the comic book store. Somebody came in, and I think they announced like a new Spider-Man movie. It was before it was out, and they were talking to my assistant manager. They go, "Do you see like the plot synopsis about it? It's not. I don't think that's going to be a good movie." Blah blah blah. And my manager goes, "Well, you know, we all have like our perfect Spider-Man movie in our head, but like we're not making the movie." It's the same thing with like watching movies and reading books and everything. As an audience, we like form our own sort of like idea of what's going to happen to characters, what's going to happen at the end of the stories. And no matter what happens at the end of like the book or movie, it's never going to line up with like what you're thinking unless like everything's like teleprompted very clearly like throughout the story. And specifically about Stephen King, like I know a lot of people like really hate uh, his endings. But I want to go back to Alex mentioned on writing earlier. And that is so good. It got me into like trying to write stuff. And he talked in that about like the way he writes stories is like he has like premises in mind, or like I guess some like story beats in mind, but he starts writing and then lets like the story kind of tell itself at that point. Like he doesn't like sit down and plot out like this is the middle, this is the end, this is the twist before the end. He lets the story kind of go for itself and either get to where he wanted or take detours or just not get there at all, which is really interesting. And he, a lot of his stories, I didn't really get this until I started reading him, his books pretty heavily. They're very character driven, which like you wouldn't get. Like I think everybody's like in our generation has probably seen like that Family Guy skit where he's like, oh, 
oh, I've got a new book about a spooky lamp. Oh. I feel like that is kind of like a general perception of him from people that don't read Stephen King. But it's all very character-driven. And we've talked a lot about Midsummer in the past, but I just want to throw this out there. My biggest gripe with it is it doesn't feel that way at all. Um, it feels like there are very strong story points, and it feels super directed at those points that characters are kind of just like walking around making like the stupidest decisions around to get to those points. And that was like one of my biggest gripes with that movie. But back to Stephen King, I think that the endings, I think, aren't always satisfying for us as readers. But I think it's where the characters logically go to if you kind of like are reading the book from the and understanding the point of view of the characters. Like I just read Thinner. Um, and I want to talk about that movie when we talk about really bad adaptation adaptations. Because the adaptation of the movie is really fucking bad. But the book, like the character is losing his weight. And throughout the book, he kind of starts to hate his wife because his wife got him in the situation and she's not understanding and she's kind of like trying to like get him to go like to a mental institute because she doesn't think that he's actually cursed by a gypsy. At the end of the book, like he has a way like to pass on his curse to someone else. And so he's going to pass on to his wife. Uh, he wakes up in the morning and his daughter came back into town without him knowing. And she also, it's a pie that he has to have people eat. Uh, there are two plates in the sink and his, his wife and his daughter ate it. And so he feels so hopeless that he sits down and has a bite of pie for himself. It didn't, it was not the way I wanted it to end, but like, it was it was so perfect for the character because he hated his wife, he loved his daughter, and he felt hopeless, like in the end of uh, The Mist, that it was a perfect way for the character to end. I think you bring up a good point, and I will also say that um, the whole character-driven piece of Stephen King novels is exactly why Stephen King does not like The Shining, the movie, because Kubrick took the characterization out, specifically around Jack, took the character build up that Stephen King gave him in the novel and just totally took it away and was like and made him like basically two-dimensional character of dude's an alcoholic and he just wants to drink and he's going to kill his family to be able to do so like it's a whole he goes from being this really three-dimensional character in the novel to a totally two-dimensional horror subject in the movie and I love The Shining. Don't get me wrong, Brad. I I also, I have a clock that has the Overlook Hotel stuff. I just got shoes with that. I love that movie. But uh, Stephen King does make a point to say, like, he rejects the film as an adaptation because of how much Kubrick took away from the characters of his novel. Because, and it's not just Jack. The whole family is made into these really two-dimensional people when in the novel, they're so much more than that. What? That's in the book at the ending of the shining they uh throughout the book jack is reading like papers and stuff in the boiler room in the basement and as he's like getting more and more sucked into like the world of the overlook hotel and all the spirits there and everything he's neglecting his duties with the boiler I think at the end, he completely like forgets to like uh, flush the pressure or something, and the hotel pretty much blows up and burns to the ground. Yep, basically. Also, there's this whole scene in the book that is not in the movie uh, with the hedge maze out in front of the hotel that the actual like topiaries come to life and start attacking them, and I wish that would have been put in the movie because 
it's one of my favorite scenes in the novel. And I uh, and when I read because I saw I've seen the movie dozens of times before I actually read the book. And when I finally read the book and I read that scene, I was like, why? <laughs> why isn't that in there? Because uh, it is. It's one of the coolest scenes in the book itself. And I just I wish because Kubrick would have done it a lot of justice, a lot of justice. I'm trying to remember. I definitely saw the mini series of The Shining on uh, when it, I don't know, it came out in like 96. And it, the kid who played Danny was one of the Little Rascals in the Little Rascals remake. Who plays The kid goes, uh-huh. But I, I wonder, does anyone rem- I only you mean, have uh-huh? like, uh-huh. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, his name. Yeah, that guy. I have just like weird, like, flashback memories of seeing that adaptation of it. Does anyone remember if that does anything different or takes more from the book than the Stanley Kubrick movie? Yeah, it's uh, not good. I mean, it's like, the budget is like super, super low and it's like cheesy. I think King was directly involved with it, but it does like some weird stuff. Like, I went to the Stanley Hotel a couple of years ago and they were playing it like in the waiting room, like when we were going to take the tour and all that. And uh, Jack gets a spooky demon man face at the end. Uh, there's just, like a lot of mist floating everywhere to make it seem like it's corporeal. I don't know, corporeal, ethereal. It's weird. It's pretty cheap. I mean, it is like a closer adaptation of the book. And I think King was heavily involved and wanted to be a closer adaptation than the Kubrick movie, but it's just not worth watching. Sorry, uh huh. Or uh huh. There's a suggestion of it at the end of the first season of Castle Rock, which really disappointed me because that was the most interesting thing of the first season of that show for me. Is it feels like the best type of fan fiction that's ever been made, where somebody took all of his stories and his world and his characters and stuck them together and made them interact with each other in a way that they weren't initially. So it doesn't follow the stories beat for beat at all. It just takes the concepts of them and kind of puts them together. And the first season focused a lot on the not time circle that you described to me earlier, which was less, I was hoping they would give us a bit, a little bit more of the familiar horror angle of Castle Rock and his stories. And unfortunately that wasn't really what you got, but uh, that's just what that reminded me of. And I could talk about that show forever because season two ramped it up so much and gave me everything that I thought I was going to get in season one that I'm disappointed we didn't get any more, but by the end of, the first season, one of the characters in season one is found out to be Jack's like niece, cousin, a relative of some kind. She's in the bloodline of him, and she ends up at the Overlook Hotel for the final scenes of the first season. That's not really a spoiler because nothing happens. It's just that she ends up in the building and you see her there, and it sort of hints that perhaps like some sort of revisitation to that or something similar. They will adapt The Shining. And unfortunately, they did not. But uh, anyway, Stephen King endings. They are, I agree with, this is a sloppy way of going back to that. But we talked about it earlier, and that's why I'm being so, you know, like, like haphazard about it. Because I've told you guys what I think. And I already have defended it because an author's vision doesn't have to be what you like. And also, much like my clown rant in the last episode, it feels like somebody once heard somebody say, Stephen King endings suck. And that became perpetuated. And so now the guy's got to really fight an uphill battle to end his stories in a way that satisfies somebody. But 
they all felt like they were inspired by the style of writing that I liked from horror comic books. And the reason that horror comics are what they are is because they have a style. The whole Tales from the Crypt, somebody does something bad, and they have their comeuppance, or there's a twist ending of some kind. It might be ridiculous. It might be, like, slapped in there. I read one recently. I got a creepy collection of from the 60s. I don't remember what story it was called, but it was a bunch of guys that were grave robbing to sell cadavers to a town uh, or uh, to a, a local college like medical wing for studying. So they would just steal bodies out of cemeteries. And the ending of it is just they end up in a town where they're like, nobody's out during the day. This is great. And this is not built up at all. Um, and the end of it is they find out that they're in a town of vampires and that's the reason. So they were trying to grave rob vampires and they die and that's ridiculous and it's out of left field, but those are the types of stories that it feels like at least inspired him to like the genre. And even if you don't like that style of ending it, at the very least, he took something from what was basically written for kids. There are children's stories that are gruesome and he made them into it's, we got through Stephen King for the horror genre, what people are getting now with comic books and other like superhero style things where we all grew up movie studios noticed we grew up and they gave us the adult versions of that. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes it sucks, but I like, I like, I would, I would defend his endings and tell people to just relax and have a more open mind. Don't just decide something whole about a man's incredibly prolific work, especially with the way that Brad was describing how he writes a story. That's not an easy way to write because I don't have the patience for something like that. I would also rush to get to the next beat that I want to get to. So anybody have anything else to say with that? Yeah. I think the one thing that if I were to say anything negative about the main man, Steve King, this episode, there's, um, he has a lot of, and I don't know if he's talked about it before. I haven't read any interviews about it or anything. And it might also be like the same thing you're saying about the clowns or somebody said clowns are scary before but he seems to have like a lot of sexual hang-ups uh specifically if you've ever read it there's a part near the end of the book where the kids go into the sewer and they finally defeat pennywise and they're like trying to find their way out of the sewer and they're forgetting and like they're growing up or something and they're not becoming friends or something because of some weird curse or spell or something and Beverly has to have sex with the rest of the boys to keep them all, like, close until they can get out of the source. It doesn't make any sense. It's so weird because they're 12-year-old kids. It just comes out of nowhere that they have, like, a kid, you know, gangbang in the sewers. It's so odd. And I think that's the one thing that I've kind of, after reading that, that was the first King book I read. After going to other books, they were like, moments similar to that from time to time that are just like oh i'm starting to see like a weird pattern and granted it isn't every book um and i haven't seen it in some of his like later stuff that i've read but it's like a kind of a through line that is a little weird um has anyone ever like seen any of that like in his like movies or karen you've read i think more of his books than i have but yeah didn't and um i'm vaguely remembering this from the from the audiobook and from it chapter one like the remake there was like a gay character in it who like went through like a very brutal death scene that just kind of felt i don't know i just felt like that was just a detail that like maybe wasn't necessary to move the plot along but i don't remember it uh enough to comment on it i think that was uh, kind of that was, I think that was in the, they put that in the It Chapter 2 movie as well. 
But yeah, it was the first, I think, chapter in Dairy. It was kind of your introduction. And I believe that it kind of functions as a framing device for the impact that the presence of Pennywise has on the rest of the town. I mean, granted, it's also just, you know, people being homophobic yeah. and awful. But I think it kind of was to establish that, like, this town isn't just, you know, sunshine and rainbows. It's, like, brutalizing yeah. people in the street because of there's, like, something lurking under the surface. That makes sense. I couldn't remember if there was, like, a sexual element to it at all. You're right. It was the beginning of Chapter 2. But I just remember. And it was, like, a pretty long segment of the book, if I recall. Yeah, there wasn't anything like overtly sexual about it. I mean, just that the character was gay and that was the reason that other characters decided to attack him. But there wasn't anything like overly sexual in that scene. Yeah, and the other thing too about it is, Alex, to your point about how someone, like there are people that told people that Stephen King endings are bad. I am that person. I was always on the receiving end from uh, my parents, we had a copy of It, we had a copy of The Stand, and uh, my uncle was really big on Stephen King. And we had Cujo, and I started reading all of these books like multiple times. And uh, my mom would be like, Ugh, his endings are just always the worst. And um, I think it was like, cute, like it turns out to be a turtle or something. And uh, you're like in the uh, mini series, you know, it's like a big spider. And at face value, it seems silly. But then, you know, once, um, you know, I got older and kind of realized just more of the Lovecraft kind of inspiration um, and all of those elements that kind of color that in, it makes it more meaningful than just at face value, a person picking up a book and being like, it's a turtle. You know, it wasn't super inspiring to me as a kid. I could go on off and in my full neck beard white male mode and just talk about how stupid people are for misunderstanding the ending of that book as if I'm smart, but it's just an elder God. It is a Lovecraftian story. Penny, like Pennywise is not just a clown. He's not just a turtle. It goes one layer deeper. They experience that by like this weird intimate interdimensional moment while they're in the sewer in the book. And then they just basically enter an ethereal world of just light and they experience thoughts, but they don't communicate. And it's just this, it's a presence. It's not a thing. And the physical manifestation of it was both from their fears and a way for this thing to exist and feed. And the turtle thing is so people are so latched onto that because that's a second presence of this thing, like a larger creature version of it, which it does start out as like, there's a clown, there is a spider, it becomes a turtle and then it becomes this giant, just like I just imagine a white space, a haze that isn't hostile. It just proves your sort of ant-like pointlessness in this world. It's a feeling. And I love that. And I know that's impossible to film. So when they did the new version of the movie, I suspected that like you're not going to be able to do that super effectively on film, potentially. Maybe you can't. Maybe people just need to try harder. I would love to try harder. Hire me to direct the reboot of the reboot of the reboot of the reboot. It'll be great. And when I'm 65 years old, I'll have the perfect it adaptation on screen. But it sounds like you need to fight my mom. Dude, you got me duding. That's how passionate I am right now is because the spider in the first one is sort of the basic first time that they meet it. And like, imagine trying to represent an otherworldly, this, this is the reason I talk shit about the nine, the 1991 or 1989 one is because of that ending. 
because I know the actual ending of the book. And also the, there's a lot of good in that. There's a lot of really cool buildup. I know it's a made for TV movie. You can't expect a lot of gore. That's fine. Tim Curry is a really good Pennywise. They did really cool things showing us the scenes that you sort of remember from that. But then they just kicked the shit out of a spider with a growing belly, like a final boss. It's just got like a glowing belly and they just kick it and then it dies. And then in the new one, I was like, they're going to at least because they show a turtle in the credits of the first movie. Like, I I thought they were hinting at they're going to bring us there. And they did. They don't. They doubled down on the fucking spider. They just gave it a clown head and they kicked the shit out of a giant spider with a clown head. Fuck, man. (laughs) I don't even have anything to say about that. You already know how disappointed by that I am. There were references to the turtle in the first movie, too. I think when they jumped in the quarry and went swimming, somebody's like, oh, I think I stepped on a turtle. And then when Bill was in Georgie's room, there was a turtle made out of Legos on Georgie's nightstand. That's probably what I'm thinking of. Um, I, for some reason, I pictured it in my brain, kind of like uh, this is a weird thing to reference, but it sticks in my head in the Ryan Reynolds Deadpool movie. They have a little toy of his Deadpool from X-Men Origins flying across the screen at one point. I thought that was a very funny little cameo. I imagined an it version of that, of a little turtle for some reason just being thrown across the screen. It was it was totally the Lego thing. That's what I'm thinking. of. I just want to point out that the turtle element to this is actually a key throughput uh, in several levels, one of which is the Dark Tower series. The Shkalpada. So he's got a turtle thing. The name of it. Stephen what? King's got a turtle thing. It's it no no no. It's more. It's exactly what Alex said. It's an yeah. elder god. The whole thing with the turtle is the fact that he's like it's cosmic horror. But people want a stabby murder clown. But they then they got exactly. cosmic horror and went. Wait, I don't get it. Why isn't the this, the murder clown stabby? I like the murder clown. I wasn't clear enough in the last episode that I do like a murder clown. I don't have a problem with them, and I like them being scary. That's fine. Killer Clowns from Outer Space is one of my favorite movies. Like, I will watch. I there was a good period of time where I would watch a movie because I saw a stabby murder clown. Because that's the reason I watched it in the first place. It pulls you into the movie, and then you leave with something better, which is feeling like a speck of dust in the universe. I I don't think that there's. I don't think that a turtle elder god is cooler than a stabby murder clown. But I am a representative of the clown community now, so I might just be on a pedestal that I need to be. Juggalos to life. <laughs> that's that, that's just it. Is that that's what people think of when they think of stabby murder clowns now? Is is Hatchet Man and and Juggalos and things? But also shout out to all twenty I of our listeners. Yeah, we we tagged him in our last post, and I just wanted to shout it out in the episode. If for some reason he listens again. He interacted with us on social media and for our tiny ass horror podcast that is now going to be four episodes deep. That felt pretty cool. Shout out to Rinkless. Um, I know we could talk all day about Stephen King. We did cover all, like, I think we covered endings, movie versus book. Are there any other things people wanted to mention before we wrap up our Steve King convo? Oh, and you thought my white guy rant was done. I didn't even get into the fact that Castle Rock is basically just his arc of Massachusetts, which is, you know, the thing that brings the whole Lovecraft mythos together. Blah, 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 blah. The thing about this is, like, I am also aware that this is a well-known fact. People that like Stephen King know all of this stuff. It just seemed ignored when it got remade. And for some reason, I felt the need to feel emotionally impacted by that because I'm a man, baby. That's my that That should be my last words. Since you brought up uh, Castle Rock again as a man baby, um, 
I did want to say that Castle Rock, the second season, is what I wanted from The Dark Tower as a book. Because me not having read it, somebody goes, yeah, there's a moment where they meet a, like a this cosmic elder god, duh. And uh, he's talking about his cousin elder god who dresses up as a clown. I was like, oh, that kind of like uh, very on the nose sort of references to other works is what I wanted from it. And I feel like I didn't get a lot of that. I, that moment verbatim was not in the book. so. That never happened. I mean, there were references to a lot of other works, but I feel like Castle Rock as the show had it worn a lot more on its sleeve, uh, which is what I wanted. But but speaking of Castle Rock also, segue from my own segue, um, I did want to talk about some of like the stuff coming out because we talked about a little bit about um, how we're in like a King Resurgence. I mean, I just want to call out, I looked at like the Wikipedia for list of adaptations of Stephen King works, and if you look at like, the 80s and 90s, it's like probably like 20-something, and you get to 2000s and like 2010s before It, it's probably like 12 movies came out in that time. And then you go to It, and everything after that, and everything TBA, and it's a list of like 30-something movies. That's a lot. And one of the things that I'm very looking forward to is Salem's Lot. I talked about that book earlier, because it's a vampire book, doesn't really have the characters interact with vampires, which is interesting. Um, are they doing a remake? They are. There's been a lot of casting news lately. Interesting. So Especially after, after Castle Rock Season 2, which takes place in Jerusalem's lot, and that was super cool. I want to, at least before the episode ends, talk about how... Uh, what's her name? Um, Janice Ian. Uh, what is the actor's name? Karen, I'm looking at you. You seem like the type of person that would know that. I was going to say her name, and now I've completely she'll, blinked on it. She's in Party Down. Uh, Lizzie yeah. Kaplan. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I knew Lizzie it was Kaplan, Lizzie Kaplan. Thank you. Yes, yes, Jesse. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan's Annie Wilkes was the most shocked I was at seeing somebody else play that character and be amazing in it than I was with because um, Kathy Bates, incredible. And so you'd think Academy Award think, winner. There's no way anybody else is going to do a really good job with that. And then she crushes it in Castle Rock season two. She is so unnerving, and I loved it. I was going to compare that to Mads Mikkelsen being Hannibal Lecter again, because you go in with your arms crossed, and then you're like, Pe- other people can play characters that are established. It's it can be very cool. I still uh, call Kara my uh, little love, like she calls her daughter in Castle Rock. That's so unnerving. Any other? Um adaptations i think this one does, does doesn't get talked hasn't been talked about i don't know the outsider so i got the outsider uh the book because i wanted to read it before i watched the tv show <clears throat> i really liked the book i thought it was really it's a throwback it's one of king it's a great throwback to like og king material it i thought it was fucking fantastic because it it's scary, but it's also, you have that, like, magical element to it. It's just, it's a fantastic book. I made it two episodes into the miniseries on HBO, and I was like, I'm over it. I'm fucking over it. I don't mind when things diverge from the book, like, whatsoever. I have no problem with that, because some things just don't come across on film. But I just felt that they pushed it a little too far outside of the source material, and then to find out that they're actually planning to make a second 
Se- what's what's season? the term? Season? Not ser- Thank you. <laughs> wow. Holy shit, wow. Aaron. Keep that pausing. Yeah, you could have said series, and we would have known what you were talking about, and all of I our English listeners would have known too. <laughs> she did, really. <laughs> my brain, my brain was literally buffering. Uh, yeah, they decided to make a second season to that, and why? Why? I don't for, they, for people that I, don't read the book and only follow the. I show. mean, well, but I mean, but at that, but at that point, like you're just you're done with the source material. You're moving completely away from it. And it's not like with Game of Thrones where they knew they had an outline of what that final like few books were going to cover and they could do that even though they still were trash about it. And it was fucking terrible ending to that series. But we won't. This, this is not about Game of Thrones. H- just HBO. Just ugh, come They did on. not renew it for a second season. Apparently Good. Stephen King, though, has said scripts exist for a second season, but I don't think it needs to be done. Um, the Outsider is so. a weird book because i didn't know this i read it when it first came out but it's the third in an unofficial series about uh i forget her name right now but the uh the detective that's in it um the the woman detective the woman from ohio Yeah. yeah she is like a she's a recurring character in some of his other books so it's like an unofficial like third entry in a series about her what yeah um I did not Holly know that. Holly Gibney is your name. Closing segment, because I talked about Stephen King's sexual weirdness. The book, the, like the first chapter of the book ends with a, they find like a little boy killed and like he's like tortured and brutalized and he has a object stuck in a place. Uh, the very, I think that was the second like example I had of like Stephen King's weird sexual through line. I didn't take that piece to be. Uh, I think that there are other, but especially like earlier novels of his, uh, much like it, that have that weird sexual throughput to it. I didn't take that for. I didn't apply that to that scene in The Outsider, like that book scene, only because I felt. I mean, it might be because of my intense obsession with true crime, but it felt like. It was honestly just setting the stage for this like horrific criminal to be found because the novel starts as more or less like a mystery detective novel. It's not like this overarching spooky thing. So I didn't take that piece. I felt like it was just like, okay, we have this like serial child rapist, terrible human out on the prowl for kids. We got to go find him. Love it. And on the note of um, Stephen King's sexuality, I feel like we did it. We did the Stephen. Did I just cut off the whole thing? No, you didn't at all. It's it is an interesting topic that a lot. I mean, there's an endless plethora of work to go through. It is impossible to cover all of it, and I'm sure there are historical episodes where people talk about you know starting with Carrie, chronologically moving through all of his work. But like that's not what we're here for. We're here to reflect on our relationship to it because I'm much more interested in how people feel about things and how it relates to their life than I am about whether or not they think it's a good movie. I want to know why or how it affects them or what it, you know, I want passion behind words. I don't need it to necessarily just be, uh, and in 1978, he brushed his teeth for the first time and it made him decide to write. Which would be really gross. Cause he was born in 1947. So. <laughs> first, yeah, that's, 
time. He, wrote, he brushed his teeth. That's a horror story in itself. Yeah, yeah, glad that it is. Um, Alex, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was a really good way to wrap up our Stephen King conversation. I, as I was talking about The Outsider, I was like, oh, shoot, we need to end on a non-Stephen King sexual hang-up through line. Uh, we need something better to end on. So thank you for wrapping up our Stephen King segment on a better note. You're welcome. I, if I really wanted to end it on a better note, I would talk about his relationship to the Ramones. But uh, Yes. Yeah, because that is a huge, I love that so much. I can it's go through like my Instagram uh, archive of all my stories, and there are so many pictures of just like Stephen King pages where he has Ro- uh, Ramon's lyrics, and it's like me having circled it on my screen. Like, look at that! Yeah, and I yep. feel like everybody that follows me is like, "Who gives a shit?" I I give a shit. I love that he wrote. Like, okay, so this ties into oh, Nikki's interests as well. We're talking about getting. This is my splatterbrain moment of going away. The Ramones had a cover album put out by Rob Zombie in the early 2000s. And uh, it, it's funny because Rob Zombie's cover of Blitzkrieg Bop is one of the worst covers on that album. But he slows it down and turns it into like a 70s rock anthem with like just totally noodling guitars. And it's like, it's fucking Blitzkrieg Bop, dude. It's, it's three chords. Uh, but he, uh, Stephen King writes the intro to it. And it is so fun to read him just talk about liking a band and dancing in the living room with his wife to the Ramones. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of the things I like. Uh, like I went to a and a with, uh, he was introducing, uh, he wrote a book with his son, Owen King. I still haven't read because it's 37,000 pages. I started reading it, uh, but I haven't. I had a copy of it since it came out. Oh my God, what is it called? I do not remember. Uh, Sleeping Beauties. I, I just looked away from my mic, but I saw him do a Q&A at a place in Milwaukee while I was living there. It was at the Riverside Theater, and we all got a book when we left. It was real cool. Yeah, but during the Q&A, people asked real, like, Q&As frustrate me because fans don't realize, like, you could get really good stuff out of this. But, like, there was a guy trying to finagle, like, an autograph in front of everybody. Like, I brought an original copy of Carrie. Do you want to sign it now? And I got to see Stephen King go, nope. And then just, like, push him away. And, like, because it's unfair to everybody in the audience. Like, they put randomly signed books in the boxes of books as they were leaving. But all I wanted to do was get up at that microphone and just be like, what's your favorite Ramon song? That's all I want to ask him. That's it. If I ever got to interview the guy, that's the only question I would ask him. I don't care about anything else. I want to hear his favorite Ramon song. And he's not allowed to say Pet Cemetery. He is allowed to say Chainsaw, <laughs> but he's not allowed to say Pet Cemetery. I, I hope that this podcast is the vehicle to get you to that point in your life. Yep. I love that. Love King. Love the Ramones. And I love that every time I hear Blitzkrieg Bop, I think of when you and I played it together at our holiday party. And I remember when we were practicing for the first time, you go, it's Blitzkrieg Bop. Everybody can play it in their sleep. I Yeah, it was the first song that I accidentally played by myself. And uh, I had a very good time with it. Justice for Rob Zombie, Hellbilly Deluxe. I didn't say and... that Rob Zombie's bad. I said his cover of Blitzkrieg Bop is bad. I defend but some no. of the guy's material. Both things can be true at the same time. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, All right. Well, you've been listening to Splatter Brains, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Splatter Brains Podcast. Twitter at Splatter underscore Brains. Yes, on Twitter at Splatter underscore Brains. Yeah. Aaron, end us us with a, a philosophical quote that you come up with right now. We didn't finish the social media, Dick Lord, and Facebook, Splatterbrains Podcast. <laughs>
Nobody I uses mean, Facebook. That was totally unnecessary. I I vote that we leave the Dick Lord comment in. Well, I'm not cutting any of this. I'm le- I'm letting myself Good. get embarrassed on on Mike. It's fine. This is who I am. I don't need to hide that from people. You're embarrassed by the term Dick Lord. I'm no, sorry. no, no. I'm embarrassed by me rushing to try and get Karen to say something and not letting you finish. Well, Karen's um, had plenty of time now. What do you got for us, Karen? Who are we? What are we here for? We're Splatterbrains talking about horror. Thanks for listening. Night, everybody.